Chapter 2 Building a Friendship Room Ladies first. Whoa, can you believe this place? Your hubby gasps. The two of you stand in the entrance hall, swiveling your heads and marveling. Every detail of this mansion proclaims wealth and prosperity. Vaulted ceilings, polished marble floors, beveled glass windows. Each architectural element reveals the designer's artistry. Running a forefinger along the mantelpiece, you close your eyes and inhale deeply, relishing the sweet fragrance of the burnished wood. Not a speck of dust anywhere. I wonder what the previous lady of the house was like. I'll bet she was really elegant. You look at your hand on the wood and blush at the realization that your chipped nail polish and ragged cuticles don't exactly exude elegance. Thrusting your hands into your pockets, you continue exploring. You find yourself drawn to one room in particular, not sure why. Everything about its decor, from the built-in bookshelves to the overstuffed love seat, invites you to make yourself at home. You kick off your sandals and wiggle your toes in the plush carpet, delighted by the way it caresses your feet, until you look down and see that your toenails are in no better shape than your fingernails. Your husband has already wandered in and plunked himself down, legs stretched out, feet up, in a tan leather recliner. He smiles at you and sits up. Come on, hon, I challenge you to a game of checkers, he says, gesturing toward a game table next to his chair. Remember how we used to play when we first started dating and didn't have any money to go out? Soon you're engrossed in jumping his black checkers with your red ones, and he reaches across the table to take your hand, murmuring, I'd forgotten how graceful and soft your hands are. You've got to be kidding, you begin remembering your neglected nails, but blushing with pleasure all the same. You're so cute when you blush, he says. Me? Cute? Blushing? Your face does feel warm. Aha! he shouts, jumping three in a row of your red pieces. King me! You stinker! No fair! You distracted me! And you grab a pillow from the love seat to swipe at him, but he dodges and tackles you around the waist, so you both tumble to the floor laughing. This is the friendship room. Startled, you realize Mr. Michaels has been watching from the doorway. The previous owners spent quite a bit of time here. As you may guess, it was their favorite room in the house. And gentlemen. You stand in the entry looking at the place. Rich, very rich people live in houses like this. It must cost a bundle in upkeep each month. You look around for a big flat-screen TV and pool table and wander through a wide doorway into a most inviting room with an easy chair practically calling your name. There's no resisting the urge to sit, no, to lounge in this room. Hmm, good on the back. Up go the feet. It even has one of those vibrating chair cushions. I could do this all day. Then you see the checkerboard. You haven't played in years. She used to kick my butt at this game, but I learned that if I could break her concentration, I could usually win. Come on, hon. I challenge you to a game of checkers. Remember how we used to play when we first started dating and didn't have any money to go out? The game starts out even enough, but soon you see her competitive edge sharpening as she plans how to double jump your checkers. I always loved how she throws herself wholeheartedly into a game, you think. There she goes, cranking up that thinly veiled urge to win. Man, I love that go-for-the-gusto air about her. It sure turned me on when we first started dating. 
but I can't let her win that easily. You reach across the table to take her hand, saying, I'd forgotten how graceful and soft your hands are. You've got to be kidding, she laughs. There, she's dropping her defenses. Now, if I can just get her to forget about this guy here in the corner. You're so cute when you blush. Yeah, yeah, that a girl. Forget about that one. It's not important. Yes! Aha! You shout, jumping three in a row of her checkers. King me! You stinker! No fair! You distracted me! She swings a pillow at you, but your body still remembers your old football days, and you easily duck out of her way, grab her around the waist, still so huggable after two kids, and pull her down on top of you, of course. The sweet scent of her perfume and delectable softness of her curves fills your being with sweet longing to hold her closer as you both laugh like a couple of school kids. This is the friendship room. Whoa, how long has Michael been standing there? The previous owners spent quite a bit of time here. As you may guess, it was their favorite room in the house. Alan and I were fortunate that our relationship began as a friendship. Although I thought I wanted a man who would make my heart skip a beat, I realized God knew better. What I needed was a comrade. Having begun in friendship, our relationship over the years has matured into a deep, enduring love. What if your relationship began on the wrong foot? What if you and your partner were first united in lustful passion before you realize the consequences of such unstable underpinnings? What if the idea of being friends with your spouse has never occurred to you? Is it too late to try to rebuild this aspect of your marriage? Friends of ours recently added a room to their house. Their home, which once adequately accommodated their family, seemed to shrink as the children became teenagers. The new addition opens from their dining room into a bright, spacious area full of windows and more than enough square footage to hold computers, video games, CD and DVD players, and lots of teenage friends. In the same way, you can build an addition onto your marriage relationship. If the house of your marriage is missing a friendship room, it's not too late to add one. We want to give you a blueprint for adding a friendship room onto your marriage. Through Alan's years of counseling people, we've found that a healthy friendship will go through five general phases. Superficiality, testing, exposure, conflict, and oneness. Superficiality. Superficiality is that wonderful early relational stage in which people discover all their similarities. Oh, you like rum raisin ice cream? No kidding, so do I. Every shared taste or opinion is a cause for celebration, another confirmation that you belong together, that you're soulmates, and that your lives were meant to intertwine. At this stage, finding things to do together is easy. Why, you enjoy doing practically everything together. You idealize each other, and there is absolutely nothing, or at least very little, that you would change about each other. Testing. You determine to pursue the relationship further. You commit yourselves to each other in an exclusive bond. 
i.e., you go steady, get engaged, or even get married. Once this bond is established, the commitment is bound to be tested. If you ever participated in scouting, you probably practiced tying knots. Square knots, overhand knots, and half hitches made up most of my limited repertoire of Girl Scout rope tricks. I was never great at knot tying, but one thing I remember, after right over left and under and then left over right and under, is pulling on the rope to make sure the knot would hold. I was testing the knot. In a similar way, we test the strength of our commitment to one another to see if it can withstand a few strong tugs. What if you dare to disagree with him on an issue? What if you tell her you think orange is not her most flattering color or you liked her hair better the other way? I was looking for a strong leader and felt insecure when Alan started asking what I wanted to do on dates or how I thought something should be done. I was afraid of falling in love with a wimp and didn't want him to be too heavily swayed by my opinions, although I reserved the right to express them vociferously when I disagreed with his decisions. I am also a map reader. I like to know where I'm going before I start out, so I know what to expect along the way. No surprises. Alan, on the other hand, learns how to get somewhere by getting lost first and finding out how not to get there. Moreover, I quickly learned that he, like many men, hated to ask directions. Somehow, stopping to ask an informed gas station attendant to get us back on the right track was an admission of defeat. Believe it or not, I often wondered if I could be married to someone who became lost so frequently. I was highly critical of Alan's detours and wasn't sure I could accept this, quote, defect in his character. Alan, on the other hand, soon became aware that I am habitually late. I maintain that it comes from growing up in a small town where nothing was farther than five minutes away. But whatever the reason, Alan had to decide whether or not he could bear to spend the rest of his life with someone who thought she could leave for an engagement at the same time as she was supposed to be arriving there and still get there on time. A crisis situation will bring out both the best and the worst in most people. Several months after Alan and I became engaged, we were in Pennsylvania visiting my parents and discussing wedding plans. Because of our Jewish families and our Christian faith, our wedding ceremony was becoming a touchy issue. Alan thought he'd like a church wedding. His parents had no objections. However, my mother, who immigrated to the USA from Austria as a 14-year-old during the Nazi era, had an especially strong reaction to his plan. Send me an invitation and maybe I'll come, she shrilled in a voice I had never heard before. Then she burst into tears, I had never seen her cry, and rushed from the room. The following night, my grandmother suffered a massive stroke, her third, 
while watching TV in my parents' family room. We all stared aghast as the recognition and fear and finally resignation flickered in her eyes before she went limp. The paramedics were there in moments to take her away, and we were left in numb shock and sadness, with the house still filled with the fragrance of the meal she had been preparing just minutes before. Two days later, Alan and I went back to Chicago for a CCC Christmas conference, leaving my beloved grandma hovering between life and death, and my mother in a sort of armed truce with us. I called home after a couple of days, and my mother informed me that Grandma had died. When I asked her if she wanted me to come home, she brusquely replied that if I couldn't say Kaddish, the Jewish prayers for the dead, at my grandmother's graveside, then she didn't want me to come, and she hung up on me. I was shocked and wounded by her rejection and cried for hours on Alan's comforting shoulder. Crying has never come easily to me, and I was embarrassed to allow my fiancé to see me with my drippy red nose and puffy red eyes. Yet Alan's acceptance of my appearance and encouragement to express my grief freed me to be honest with emotions I might otherwise have tried to smother. My natural tendency in that type of crisis situation had been to withdraw and wrestle with my feelings in private torment. But by staying doggedly by my side, Alan proved to me what a true and trusted friend he was. We pooled our meager resources and bought a one-way ticket to Pittsburgh. I arrived home smothered in anxiety, afraid my mother would reject me totally. But when she saw me, she yelled, Polly's home, and threw her arms around me as my dad came running. That single episode did more to establish a solid foundation of trust in my relationship with Alan than any untested pledges of allegiance could possibly have done. He had come alongside me in my time of need and broken through the walls I characteristically built up around my emotions. I was grateful. Exposure. In the course of time, a certain amount of exposure takes place. After all, you can't hide your true colors from each other forever, especially once you begin living together. Like the title of the old Clint Eastwood movie, you begin seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly in each other. Every so often, Alan would snap at me or overreact to something I said or the way I said it. On visits with his parents, I noticed him reacting to his mother in a similar fashion. Because we lived hundreds of miles away and seldom visited his family, I hadn't witnessed this disrespect previously. The way he spoke to his mom on these occasions repulsed me, and I was offended that he would respond to me the same way. I didn't want to see such nastiness in my husband, but I had to accept that it existed. I responded to those episodes with silent withdrawal, which Alan called stewing. I didn't like his behavior, but rather than risk conflict by confronting it, I pulled into myself and pondered my critical thoughts. How can he be that way? 
I would never act like that. If he really loved me, he would never talk to me that way. Over the next several weeks, Alan would have to coax the truth out of me, piece by obnoxious piece. I could really drag out my self-righteous, judgmental withdrawal periods. Alan asks, what's wrong, Polly? I respond, oh, nothing. (sighs) As you see the rough edges, the warts and all sides of each other, you must consciously choose to accept this partner just the way he or she is. If you've not yet committed yourselves to each other, you must ask yourselves, can I live with this aspect of my loved one if my loved one never changes? Alan was especially irritated by my tendency to laugh when I was embarrassed or in any kind of emotional pain. The mixed messages confused him, especially if he was telling me that I had hurt his feelings in some way. Oh, (laughs) I'd giggle. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Really, I am, smiling. Thinking I was minimizing his pain and not taking his feelings seriously, he would become angry or frustrated with me. What he didn't understand was that I come from a family who dealt with pain by making jokes. His family, on the other hand, freely expressed all kinds of emotion in front of one another. When Alan first told me about his fear of reading aloud in public, I, the honor student, was appalled. How could I, who derived tremendous pleasure from reading to others, be identified with someone who'd taken remedial reading classes in school and frequently loses his place on the page? Alan loves to sing, but can never remember all the words to songs, so he makes up his own. This character, quote, flaw, according to me, the perfectionist, made me grit my teeth in our early days. I often corrected him until I finally realized that he would forget the same words again the next time and decided I could choose to enjoy that he so often has a song in his heart. Conflict. Eventually, a relationship with any amount of honesty will experience conflict. Disagreements will occur because we're two separate people coming from two different points of view and interpreting life's experience through diverse grids formed by our backgrounds and personality traits. If you never conflict with your spouse, at least one of you is lying or possibly withholding your true feelings. In a healthy relationship, Both parties freely express their opinions without fear of risk to the relationship itself. For the first 10 or so years of our marriage, I tried to avoid arguing with Alan at all costs, at least out loud. Inwardly, I carried on a running dialogue of things I felt like saying, but was afraid to. Unresolved conflict will result in a developing distance or emotional separation. Even though the pain of the emotional wounds you inflict upon each other will subside with time, without forgiveness and reconciliation, it is never totally forgotten. The next incident will call it right back up again, and the resulting separation will be greater than the previous one. Eventually, 
the accumulated distance and wounding are so great they seem insurmountable, and many couples decide to call it quits. Oneness. However, with satisfying resolution, forgiveness, and restoration, what Drs. John and Julie Gottman of the Gottman Institute call repairing, the conflict may actually result in greater oneness than the couple experienced initially. The turning point came for Alan and me when we attended a communication workshop taught by Dr. Dallas and Nancy Demet, which equipped us with tools to fight right, to verbalize negative feelings without bashing one another in the process. These skills gave us freedom to express our emotions, voice our opinions, and suggest possible solutions to our issues without escalating into a huge blow-up. We learned how to disagree without devaluing one another, to state an opposing position without jeopardizing our entire relationship. In fact, we learned what so many others in strong, vital marriages have learned, that when we disagree and work through our conflict to a mutually satisfying conclusion, our relationship ends up stronger than it was before. We experience the oneness that God desires for us. Discussing the following questions with your spouse. Key turning questions. Number one, what, besides physical attraction, used to draw you together as friends? Number two, what would you like to do now to help develop your friendship? Number three, what are your individual interests? Where do they overlap? Discuss how you can develop a large area of overlap. Conclusion If your relationship has been devoid of friendship, it's not too late to start over. The Lord can redeem the time and restore the years the locust has eaten. Joel 2.25 Determine now to fashion a new beginning for your marriage based on the vital key of comradeship.